It's a good night, isn't it? Well, we, uh, we're in this series the, in the Song of Solomon called A New Song. And um, I don't know about you, but I've really been enjoying this, this, this series. If you're joining us tonight, we're in, uh, I believe we're in week five. Yeah, we're in week five, but we haven't got past chapter one. Um, because I, I really believe, and I, I believe this 100%, um, that the movement that God wants to do not only through this house, but over this area, is hinged on one thing. It's really understanding intimacy with God. It was, I was really encouraged. Many of you have probably heard that there's this little revival going on right now, and it's, uh, it's, it's happening all over the nation. I was watching um, a few moments of the, 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 the pastor's message before the chapel service that really when the revival started and one of the last things he said was we have to learn how to take delight in God and that he takes delight in us. And if you remember, that's, that, that was actually one of the messages here a couple weeks ago. So it's really encouraging to know that it's not a message that I came up with. It's a message that God is pouring out on the church, right? And um, as I was studying this week, into this, into this study on intimacy and closeness with God, God gave me something that I really believe is going to, if we get this, we're going to see a move over Savannah like we've never seen before. And I believe it's going to spread not, not through a single house, but through many houses connected together. And um, I'm not sure how this message is going to go tonight. I don't know if I'm going to get to preach the whole thing or if we're going to have to stop in the middle of it, but we're just going to do what the Holy Spirit wants to do. Amen. The message tonight I'm talking about is entitled this, Awaken the Night. Awaken the Night. I believe that God is calling his church into a great awakening. And I'm just going to go ahead and read it. I read it in huddle, and I'm going to read it today. Someone posted this on Facebook. It's the most, you know, the Holy Ghost speaks through Facebook. And um, y'all lighten up. Y'all okay? And it was someone talking about the Asbury Revival going on right now. And this is what it says. One piano player, one guitar player, a single drum. Hard chairs, ugly interiors. The lights don't dim. No one serving donuts, no one serving coffee. Although some are. Not a single smoke machine, no flashy screens, no fancy lights, no timers, no perfect productions, no leader, no teams, no competition, no hierarchy, no nursery, no kids' church, nobody greets you in the parking lot, no structure. Apparently, the only thing needed to attract people to God is God. And I just pray that we can become a people where we don't need all the stuff to get us in the presence that we just have a hunger to be in his presence. Presence is not necessarily an atmosphere. Presence is the revelation that God is present. And when we enter into a revelation that he is present, God is here among us, then the atmosphere shifts according to the revelation of what already is. Right? It's not let me get in the presence. It's let my eyes be awakened to I cannot escape his presence that surrounds me every day of my life and what the church has created is let me get in the presence of God 
failing to understand that you cannot get out of it. So start giving him worship and honor in all parts of your life because he is simply present. Right? And I believe when we get that revelation, we will start to really see what this whole awaken the night really means. So let's pray and we're going to get into study. Lord, I just thank you for everything you're doing in and through this house. I thank you for what you're doing over the, through the many houses of this nation, of this area. God, I pray that tonight we, not, we don't hear my words, my thoughts, or my opinions. We just hear your truth. So Holy Spirit, say what you want to say. Communicate what you want to communicate. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jacob. <clears throat> have y'all been experiencing the pollen stuff like I have? Yeah. <clears throat> you can kind of hear it. Uh, it's kind of cool sounding, though. Um, <clears throat> Awake in the night. We've been in this study, <clears throat> studying the relationship of the Shulamite woman and the king, the man, and Song of Solomon's. We're in chapter 1 tonight. And we've been talking about how this is a picture that, that is not just a book about um, sexual things that many preachers think it's just about, but this is a book about the courtship and marriage between the Shulamite woman and the king, or otherwise, the bride, the church, and the father. I've said this many weeks, and I'm going to say it again because there's so many new ears tonight, and I want you to get this. We need to enter into a time where we're not necessarily trying to teach people right from wrong, rather how to enter into a marriage. We ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we always focus on the fact that we have knowledge of evil, but the knowledge of good things is actually not a great thing either. Because just because it's a good thing is not something that God, necessarily something that God ordains you to walk into. We need to get into a relationship with God that is so deep and so intimate where we're simply following him and we won't need the discernment of what's good or bad. We simply walk with him to such a degree that we don't walk into anything that he would not ordain and would not want. Does that make sense? This is about a marriage. This is about getting close and familiar with God, intimacy, a close, familiar, personal place where the bridegroom, the bridegroom and the bride have a very close relationship, as in a marriage. Last week, we talked about the shadow and the veil, that the Shulamite woman, this entire passage, was starting to, talking about how much she wanted to be with this king and how much she loved this king and wanted the king. And then she started talking about how she's, she's had the sun beat on her for so long because she was working in the vineyards, she was working in the fields, and her brothers made her work so she couldn't focus on herself. So she was beating herself up for being what she would consider ugly, that she wasn't beautiful. And the king kept reminding her, no, 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 you are lovely. You're lovely. You're beautiful. I feel like a lot of times in life, and I'm going to sit here for a second, is that we get so caught up in what life's done to us that we forget how lovely we actually are in the eyes of the father. The father actually takes delight in you. You don't have to prove anything to God. He loves you and accepts you. And your life is less about let me prove to God that I'm good. And it's more about let me start believing that I am as he says I am. You're good. You're lovely. You're not defined by your past. You are defined from the moment you were reborn and said yes to Jesus. The moment you are reborn means that your past life is no longer on the record. 
You are new. You're beautiful. He calls you spotless. And if you would get convinced that you're that good, you would stop talking yourself out of the things that he would like for you to do. He's got great plans for you, and what you have done in your past or what you have experienced in your past does not take authority over those assignments. The only authority over those assignments is the leading of the Holy Spirit. We just have to say yes. Mike, if you come up here for a minute, he wrote something, and I want to, um, yeah, come on. Yeah, it's, I called your name. <laughs> I got some, he, he wrote me something today, and I want him to read it or say it if you go ahead and pull it up. This, this woman was working in the vineyards, and as she worked in the vineyards, she said she got darker and darker and darker. Basically, what she's saying is, I had to spend so much time working that I could not focus on myself. And we talked about this Wednesday night. That is religion in a nutshell. You spend so much time trying to get it right that you're actually neglecting your spiritual health. You spend so much time trying to make sure you make the church service or you get the devotion in or you, or you get the prayer time in. And then because you don't make those marks, you start thinking that, for some, that God's not pleased with you. Then you go into the same repentance you've done for the past 52 weeks of the year and wonder why you're never getting anywhere. You are focusing more on the work than who you are. So with that vineyard idea, he has something that I think the church needs to hear. So um, God downloaded this to me this morning, and I just wrote it down. It's called Victim Mentality, and we all know this. The world works and functions in a victim mentality. It's always, this has happened to me, and I should be compensated for it. And they never rise out of the victim mentality to a victory mentality because they don't see any other way. The problem is I see this mindset has creeped into the church. We get persecuted, and Jesus said we would. And we go into victim mode. Why me? It's not fair. Someone's going to pay, etc. We cannot have a victim mindset and walk in victory. We can't walk in the kingdom that way. So many of us in the church are walking in our victimhood because of hurts, sicknesses, disease, other things that are going on in our lives, offenses. When we stay there, we don't walk in the victory of Jesus. We don't walk in the kingdom mentality. Even the Shulamite woman had a victim mentality. When she talked about her brothers making her work in the field, which made her skin brown, she couldn't take care of herself. She blamed it on them. She got in the victim mentality. Although the king, Jesus, told her he loves her, she stayed in that victim mentality. We have to know about this so we can get out of it. When things hit us, and they will, we have to repent. Walking the victory that Jesus brought for us, being aware of victory and walking in it will help us when that victim mentality comes on us. That's what I wrote down. The thing I will say is, is if we are walking in that victory that Jesus brought for us, we are seated in the heavenlies right now. He said it. We can't walk as a victim and sit in the heavenlies. So if you... Have, if things hit you, things hit all of us, and we do get in that victim mentality. We can't stay there. So if you've been in there, go to God. He'll show you. Go to him and repent because that's the only way you're going to get out of that 
and get into the victory that Jesus bought for us. Amen. So, can I do this? Because yeah. I, I asked God just a declaration. So I want everybody in here to declare right now and say it. I declare I am not a victim. I declare I'm a victorious in Christ. In Jesus' name. So good. So good. We need to com- we need to get convinced of our place. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. Why wait for heaven when he says it's available now? We get so consumed on when the end time is coming that we forget the most beautiful thing. It hasn't come yet, so there must be something for us to walk into. And in order for us to walk into it, we've got to get lost in who we are. And we got to get out of this veiled thinking mentality. See, the Shulamite woman said, hey, king, shepherd, she shifts to. She says, I want to go where, you, where you're going. I want to be where you are. She says, I don't want to walk around in a veil like these other women. I don't want to do that. You see, back in the day, if you had a veil on and you were walking around, basically you were, your occupation was that you were a prostitute. You would wear a veil and you would wait for any lover to take you by the hand. And that's where we have become as a people. That we have these desires, we have these things that need to satisfy us, and we settle for any other lover but the one who calls us to take a seat with him. And that's what I mean when I say we need to get out of sin management and start understanding how to get married. Because marriage is the best way to manage your sin. If you, if you keep managing your sin, and I'm going to get to this in the message, your eyes are not focused on the right thing. Stop looking at the place that you keep messing up in and fix your gaze on the Father. Fix your gaze into, I don't want any other lover to satisfy my desires. God, fill me up. So this is where the Shulamite woman is up until this point in the scripture. And tonight we continue the dialogue. In Song of Solomon 1, verse 12, it says this. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. And I'm going to spend about 30 minutes on this one verse. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. At his table in the Hebrew, bimisibo, literally means this, in this circle. Referring to a round table, what was at a marriage festival. I find that very interesting that she takes notice that the king is at the table that is represented in a marriage, a round table. It reminds me of King David getting lost in worship, and they called it the circle dance. He got so lost in giving praise to God that he literally went into a circle dance. And you can, whatever translation you want, some say would, would be he disrobed and he just gave, gave it all to God. And here this woman, she's shifting and she's saying, I am understanding and recognizing that my king is at the table in a home waiting for me. You see, the table represents this place where we come together. Break bread, catch up with friends and family, the place we sit down for conversation. Everyone or either has or has been at or has seen some form of the table. But many have allowed the table 
to shift from a place of community and breaking bread and communion to a place of clutter. Anyone that has kids knows what I'm talking about. You, you walk into someone like my house who, you know, I, 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 it looks like a, like a hotel room. It, nothing's touched. And the table is perfect. There's nothing on it. You walk into someone else's house. I, I won't name names, but like my cousins, Ryan and Chelsea, and... <laughs> And, and, and their house, you know, they got three kids, so they don't see a spotless table necessarily. You see the crayons, you see last night's dinner, you see you know, the book bags, you see the lunch boxes, right? Can anyone identify with that? Can, you know what I'm talking about? But what, <laughs> I'm going I'm to catch flack for that later. But what happens in our life is that we actually start using the table as a place to clutter things up instead of sitting and feasting. We start cluttering up with what do I need to do for God to accept me as this. We start cluttering up with all these things in our minds. Like, well, I got to start getting this down and I better start doing this so that I can do that. And God says, no, 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 no. Don't put anything on this table other than just accepting the fact that I'm preparing a feast for you. I am preparing a feast for you and all I want you to do is come sit and I want you to eat of this feast. I want you to commune with me. You see, from Genesis to Revelation... All throughout the scripture, there's many things at the table. Many things. It's the place God sits at in the marriage, preparing an invitation for his bride. All he wants for us is to come sit at the table. In Genesis chapter 2, I want you to look at this. In verses 8 and 9, it says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Skip to verse 15. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you're sure to die. In the very beginning, the place where God planned and prepared for man to dwell was a place for a great feast. He says, we tend to focus on the fact that they couldn't eat of one tree. But I want you to pay attention to what the scripture is saying. God is saying, this is your place. I've prepared a place for you and you can eat of any of it. It says there were tons of trees delicious fruit from the trees. He says, I have prepared a place for you to come and dine with me. And what it is that we have missed is that lovers of God are accepting an invitation to a banquet of a lover, leaving the banquet of knowing any other lover. Because what happens is God says, I have prepared great things for you, and I, and I want to fill you up, and I want to sustain you, but you, and you can eat of any of the fruit I've prepared. I've got these assignments for you. I've got this destiny for you. I've got dreams and plans for you, and you can have any of it. Just don't go there. Just don't settle for that. And a lot of times what happens when the table gets cluttered is we tend to take our eyes off of the point of the fact that he has said, I've got so much for you to dine with me, and you're leaving the table for anything else. He says, I am preparing a place for my bride to feast and commune with me. You see, in Genesis, when Adam and Eve... Sinned when they took the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of 
good and evil, the first thing God asks is, where are you? It wasn't that God didn't know where they were. It's that he was talking about, you're no longer close to me. You've exited the place of close proximity. You have exited out of an intimate bride relationship. And what happens in our lives is that God invites you to a place of familiarity with him. And the church has turned familiarity into religious systems. You've got to do this and you've got to do that in order to get to God. And we pick on the Catholic church saying you've got to get to God through the priest and Mary. But the, the, the Protestant church, if you will, every other church does the same thing. You've got to get to God by making sure you come to the altar. When the God actually calls your life an altar. We, we, we turn this dance with God, this relationship with God into all this do, do, and do. When he says, would you just feast from all the things that I prepared for you? In Revelation 3.20, it says this, Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. He says, I want to come in where you are so that we can dine together. The problem is we don't start dining with God because we're not convinced that he loves us. So we create a separation. There is a... There's something said tonight in prophetic that is totally true, but I want to bring something else to it. That faith this side of a mustard seed can move a mountain. How many of you believe that? Okay. Now let's get real. How many of you have had a mustard seed type faith, but no mountains are moving? Right? Well, I'm believing for my mom to get healed, right? I'm believing for uh, my, my medical diagnosis to go away. I'm believing for my friend to get saved. Can we talk real? How many of you have had the fate for that to happen, and it's been months and days and years and nothing's happened? Anybody been there? I believe I know why. This, this, is, this is the thing we, we've been waiting for. In Galatians 5, 6, it says this. Faith worketh by love. You can have all the faith in the world and faith the size of a mustard seed to see healing, to see breakthrough, to see deliverance. But if you're not convinced of his love for you, that faith has no permission to work. Because what starts to happen is if it's just faith, and you don't see faith starting to work, you get into religious mode. Well, I better not miss one service. Well, I guess I need to pray more. You know, we've said it. I guess I need to have more devotion time. Well, I guess I need to cut out the, the bad music in my car and put the worship music in. We, we start to, to, to calculate what must be preventing my faith from working. What works faith? Love. And you cannot love if you are not convinced that you are his beloved just as much as he is our beloved. So he says, faith works by love. So for your faith to work, you need to get convinced, get out of this vineyard, get out of the veil, and get convinced that God loves you and invites you into, as we have read these past few weeks, the chamber of chambers, the most holy place, his very presence. 
For those of you that are new tonight, we have seen stupid miracles over this past two years. We've seen people get out of wheelchairs that have been paralyzed for 20 years. We've seen tumors disappear. We've seen cancer disappear. We've seen sickness go away. We've seen lives healed, marriages restored, all kind of great things. Imagine if we would be a people that actually believed he loved us. And when you start to believe he loves you, you'll start to see life as a, this is my table. This is what the Lord has prepared for me. Why am I praying God come back soon when I'm in the very place he has prepared for me to dwell? Well, that's easy for you to say, my life's miserable because you're eating from the wrong table. Well, I, 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 can't, I can't sustain relationships. You must be eating from the wrong table. What do you mean eating from the wrong table? You are getting sustenance from something other than the lover of lovers. And when you start to get sustained in a close walk with the lover of lovers, the bridegroom, Christ himself, when we start to get lost in that intimate relationship, then the only thing we pour out is anything that we get from eating at the table of our bridegroom because we're actually walking in marriage covenant. So what happens is we get so lost in an intimate place with God that our discernment becomes ridiculous, our words of knowledge and wisdom start to flow because we will actually start operating as a seated position at the table rather than people thinking we have to earn the seat. Is this, is this okay? Look at this, Matthew 22, verses 1 through 3. Jesus told them parables, and he said, The kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. Now, this, listen, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by this, a king who prepared a great wedding feast. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them the feast had been prepared, the bulls and fattened cattle have been killed, everything's ready, come to the banquet. But the guests he invited ignored them, and went their own way, one to his farm, another to his business. Interesting, isn't it? He prepares a table for you, but you've got other agendas. Well, I've got life goals. From what table? Well, I've had this dream since I was a kid. Were you seated? Okay, let, let, can I push there a little bit? Why are you guiding your life by the dream when you were five when you may not have dreamt from the right table? Maybe that's why he says young men will dream dreams. Don't be limited to one you had when you were maybe out of seated. Maybe when you got saved, you, you were on this path in college, right? You, you were on this path where God was leading you into this career. Then all of a sudden you had this shift in desire. Why are, you beating up from, why, are, why are you beating yourself up from shifting? You got seated at a new table. He started giving you new dreams. I don't know who that's for. Maybe it's for me. I was in college, full-ride scholarship, pre-med, UGA. Every guy's dreams go to UGA. Why did I pick it? Four to one girl to guy ratio. <laughs> Is that okay? Can I just get real? I learned real quick that wasn't the place God wanted me. And you know how I exited? 
when I found out he had a different dream for my life than I did. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go into this thing I never want to do called church, right? Because when you start to understand what table you're at, it affects all decisions. So these people are doing their own thing. Well, I got my businesses, I've got my stuff. And then this is what happens at the end of the verse. The, 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 the people that he wanted didn't come, and then he said, well, get anyone. Get the good, get the bad, get the ugly, bring them all in. It's kind of like he came for the Jew and the... The Gentile. How many of you know Gentile people? We, we all, we, we ugly. But this is what he said. Hey, someone says, speak for yourself. <laughs> I love this church. Matthew 22, check out verse 11. It says, but when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. And you know what happened to him. Kicked them out. Our Lord and king is keeping his covenant in the marriage by keeping his position at the table and preparing for his bride to come and take part. And all he wants is for you to come dressed appropriately. Not to be perfect, but to come dressed. You know what come dressed is? Get convinced that you're a worthy bride and stop calling yourself unworthy. Because this is what church teaches us. Church teaches us repentance is, God, I'm not worthy. That is actually telling God he's wrong. Because when God redeems you, he says, now you are righteous. You are worthy. You are my beloved. I take the light in you. So stop letting banter coming out your mouth saying, well, I know God can't use me because I'm not worthy. Yes, you are. Get dressed. You see, getting dressed is actually getting lost in an identity other than the one you think of. It's an identity as the Father sees you. He says, you are worthy, you are loved. Now, come to me as if you actually believe it. Get dressed. I've got a place for you at my table, reserved for you. Even in the Last Supper, which in my opinion is a horrible name for it, the Last Supper wasn't the Last Supper. It was the first, of a, it was the first Supper of a new supper. Is that, is that okay? I, I, I'm going I'm to derail for a minute. The Bible does that a lot. The, the, the people who transcribe Scripture did a lot of that stuff. It wasn't the Last Supper. It was a new supper. The parable is not about, you know, Simon the leper. It's about Simon who used to be a leper. And what we do is we identify people off of the thing that he redeemed people from, and they get convinced of living outside of their wedding clothes and wonder why they can't feast at the table. <laughs> get seated, get dressed. Get dressed is not getting it all right. Get dressed is get convinced that he loves you regardless, and when you get convinced that he loves you regardless, he says, I will actually give you new desires so you will actually have a different desire that takes you a direction away from the sinful one. Not because you were trying to manage the desire, but because you got dressed and got a different one. Is this making sense? Okay. Even in the Last Supper, look at this in Luke twenty-two fourteen. 14. It says, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And you know what he started doing? He started showing them how the bread and the wine are symbols of unity with him. 
So I've given you my body to free you. I'm giving you my blood as a new covenant. And then this is what he says at this table. He says in verse 27, who is more important? Listen to this. The one who sits at the table or the one who serves? Well, the one who sits at the table, of course. But not here. For I am among you as one who serves. Now, I'm going to stop there for a second. Do you realize what he just said? He said the most important place is a seat at the table. But not here. The most important seat at this table is me. Because I serve the ones who take the important seats. And what we get lost in is you better serve and do and do and do. And he says, no, 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 that's, that's my position. You, 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 you just sit down. You get seated. And when you start to take of this feast that I have prepared for you, everything in your life will start to follow according to your position, a seated position. I actually go ahead and speak that to you. I wrote that down as a book title a year ago from a seated position. Because I believe that people need to start realizing we need to take our seat for the one who served us so that we could do so. He says in verse 28, you have stayed with me in my time of trial. Just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Not once you get to heaven right now. And you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. A new covenant or a marriage is offered to a bride to be rightly invited to simply eat and drink at the table of a king who doesn't have to serve us but does. <clears throat> Are you getting convinced of your seat at the table? I mean, think about it. Psalm 23, 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Why does he prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies? Don't eat from that warfare. Because what happens is exactly what Mike talked about. We start to go through battles in our life, and then we get up from the table and start engaging in a battle that's already been won. The best way to fight that battle is to eat. Eat of what? Eat and drink. Unity and communion with God in the midst of all of your enemy. Why engage with an enemy that doesn't have any possibility of winning if you just get lost in a banquet with your bridegroom? Well, I'm going through this. Okay, you can put your mind on what you're going through or you can get lost at the table. Right? And that's, but that's what victim mentality does. Well, you don't know what it's like to be me, and I've gone through this, and I've gone through that. Your mind is sitting at the table of, look at what I've had to go through. How much more does God need to convince you that your new life in Christ is actually a new life? Isaiah 25, 6, he says, In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. Not a select, not a remnant, not a predestined group, the whole world. Can I break some of your theology? All are predestined for heaven. But we all have the free will to choose we can sit at the table or not. 
He says, I prepared a feast for the whole world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. And the Shulamite woman recognizes this. The Shulamite woman recognizes my king is sitting at his table preparing a place for me to come and sit. You see, God prepares a table for you. It's a seat that you could have never earned. But he went to the cross and he bought your seat. And he's offering and preparing and offering and preparing the greatest feast for you. That you may be sustained by dwelling in his presence at the table. That you will be filled with the greatest joy and greatest peace. Because you just take banquet at the table. God says, I am preparing a great feast for you. A feast of grace, a feast of mercy, a feast of, a feast of peace, healing, joy, blessing, abundance. A feast of provision, a feast of protection, a feast of presence, a feast of breakthrough. You know, it's interesting how we have more compassion for the sick than the ones who need deliverance. Because when we look at people who are sick, we think they're victims to the disease. But when we look at someone that might have an STD, we say, that's your fault. Or we, we, let's talk about the, some things going on in this nation. We look at the, the, the identity issue, the gender confusion, the homosexuality. We look at them and we have less compassion on them than the sick. Right? Because the sick didn't choose it. And we say they must have, right? But what we don't understand is that they are lost at the wrong table. And breakthrough and deliverance is getting them convinced that they don't have to stay at that one. And you know what the church needs to do? We need to walk into such a level of lover with God, of such a level of marriage with God, that when people see the table we, we, we eat at, they won't need a breakthrough or deliverance altar call. They'll come running from that table and say, show me how to eat. Yeah. Hmm. There's a free invitation to come and join. He says, sit at my table. I prepared it for you, my bride. And then in the second part of that verse, he says, as the king surrounded, she says, as the king surrounded me at his table, the sweet fragrance of spikenard awakened the night. The sweet fragrance of spikenard awakened the night. She says, the king surrounds me at his table. Again, do you realize that communion is simply a symbol of communion? Hear me. Communion is a symbol of communion. He's all around us. Now, I'm going to say something, and I want you to hear me out before you start getting mad at me. Okay? I don't see anything wrong with people driving up to Kentucky to see the, the revival going on at Asbury. But let me say this. You don't have to drive to the revival at Asbury to experience the revival at Asbury. God is no more there than he is here. The difference is simply this, the pursuit of lovers. 
You want to see that happen? Interrupt my message and start praying and don't stop. Right? Don't wonder how long the worship's going because you are getting lost in a great feast. He invites us to the table. He says, she says, the king is all around us. He's here. He's there. When we embrace that revelation, perhaps we will walk in a posture of I feast with the king and no one can take my joy. Why do you let people steal your joy? Because you sit at their table. You get your sustenance from them. Well, my mama never tells me she loves me. Why is your identity wrapped up in your mama? You don't know what it's like to live with my parents. I know what it's like to live with your daddy. But what happens is we put identity in all these other tables. Perhaps it's easier. I don't know why I'm saying this. Perhaps it's easier to honor mother and father when you sit at the banquet of your true father. Right? Because you no longer look to them to be your sustenance. You want marriages to improve? Stop trying to get edified by husband and wife and walk in edification of father so that the only thing you're concerned about is how do, do I edify? Right? Okay. As this king surrounded the bride, she offered one thing. Is this okay tonight? As the king surrounded the bride, she offered one thing. She said, the fragrance of spikenard awakened the night and spread through the room. You see, nard is this Himalayan plant that gave these sweet aromas. It's actually from India, and they would transport it down. And it was the source of many ointments in this day. Um, <clears throat> nard came from a variety of different things, and nard came from what was called, some was called spikes. And spike nard, or spike nerd, or whatever you want to call it, whatever the correct thing is, it was the best nard you could find. It was very costly. It was extremely expensive. And in fact, we see the use of this spike nard in another passage. Mark 14, 3. Meanwhile, Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon, a man who had previously had leprosy. And while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. She broke open the jar and she poured the perfume over his head. This woman was actually anointing Jesus, the king, with her oil. Not just any oil, but her best oil. The most sweetest and costly offering she had. She just poured it out. Now some passages you'll read says that it poured over his head. Some passage would say it poured over his feet. All kind of different takes. You want to know what, what the truth is? She anointed from head to toe. It's just different perspectives across the translations. She was actually, whether or not she didn't know it, but she was actually anointing, anointing him and covering with him with oil, preparing him for death. But l- let me go in a little bit different direction because we actually see two things happening here. They were at dinner at the table. And as they were at dinner at the table, when people would come to dinner, when the guests would arrive, it was custom when a guest entered a room to take oil and put a, a, just a smidge, if you will, 
and dabbed the head with oil. Okay, that was custom. People would carry a small jar or a small um, kind of a, a, I think they're called uh, satraps is what they're called, um, and they would, they, would, they would hold it on a necklace. And the necklace would be full. Y- y'all pay attention to me. Get to this table. All right. These small perfume oh, sachets, that's what they're called, sachets. They were small, praise God Almighty. They they were small perfume bags filled with spices and ointments. And the reason they would carry them is because they were easily sold for trade and for investments when they came through towns. So this woman, Mary, without consulting anyone, had this thing that was costly, expensive, Without even asking the permission of the owner of the house, she just started pouring out her oil all over Jesus. And when she poured out the oil, the sweet aroma filled the room. If you study, actually, it was about 12 ounces of straight oil. That's a lot. And if we will begin to pour out whatever we have as a response to the king offering a feast at the table, a fragrance would fill the room that not only pleases the king, but it causes all to look upon what's going on. And then there's either two choices, join in or criticize. And I say, church, let us be a people who join in on pouring it out. Because if you remember in this passage, when she started pouring this oil, if any of you needs ammo about women in ministry, This is a moment when the women taught the men. And no men were stepping up. No men were stepping up and saying, hey, we need to anoint Jesus. This woman recognized who was at the table and just started pouring everything out. And when she started pouring everything out, when she started pouring everything out, everyone looked. They said, what are you doing? We could have sold that and given it to the poor. We were never supposed to have knowledge of good or evil. Because in that moment, their knowledge of good took them away of what was better. Just pour it out. And what church does is we, what's good is go evangelize the world and get them saved. Heck yeah. But we can't do that until we get lost in what's better. Pour it out. Lord, here I am. Lord, here I am. Lord, here I am. Here's my best offering. Here's my praise. Here's all of me. I am recognizing that I am at the most wanted seat ever in the history of the world at the seat of the king. And he calls me his bride. Here's my best. Here's my offerings. Here's my praise. Here's my thoughts. What do you give your best oil to? Is it any lover or is it the beloved? The Shulamite woman in this passage, her response to the king is, let me offer a sweet fragrance that will awaken the night. Why could she do this? These Hebrew women, they would carry it on a necklace, and the necklace would actually sit on the chest between their breasts, under their dress, and the reason they would 
hold the fragrance here because when they would walk into the room, it would attract anyone in the room to them. It was a way to make their presence known to men, if you will. Let me hold this perfume right here on this necklace so that when I walk in, everyone smells it and the attention's on me. So she says, my response to my king preparing a table is I am walking in to invite him into every part of me. So what does that look like? Let me read these really quick. These are on the screen. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's faithful to forgive. He's faithful to cleanse us, right? Romans 10, 9, say with your mouth out loud that, 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 this, that God, you believe in your heart, you will be saved. Confess, confess, repent, confess. Acts 2, Peter the, Peter told the people, repent, be baptized. Hebrews 13, 15, offer up a sacrifice of praise. What are all these things? Just like the woman carried the perfume, your confession, your repentance, your declaration, and your praise is the sweet-smelling nard of your life. And it's not I confess and I repent and I praise and I declare so that God hears me. It's I do these things because it makes my want for him known. It's not repent because you want to get something. It's here I am. And this fragrance is awakening the night. It's bringing light into darkness. As I walk into a room with the remembrance of God close to my heart, everything is awakened. And I no longer see, is it something I want or something I don't? It's, it's simply, where is God in this thing? The Shulamite woman understood something that the church has missed. It was her ability to attract the beloved. Do you realize that what you carry has the ability to attract the presence of God? Why waste time in any other type of conversation? John 4, 23. The time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is looking. He's looking for those who will worship him that way. The Father's looking. Just like he said, Adam, where are you? And the attraction to God to let him know we are here is the nard awakening the night. Our praises that please him. Our confession, our repentance, the acceptance to the invitation. And just as we attract him, his presence actually attracts us in the very same way. Look at this next verse, verse 13 to 14. Y'all okay? There's a lot of movement in the room. Verse 13. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh. Now watch this. It just shifted. I'm wearing this to let you know I want you. To let you know I want to be at this table. Then she shifts. My beloved is like this sachet of myrrh between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. Just as she carried the scent between her breasts to invite him in, we get to keep him, his presence, this fragrant remembrance close to our heart. That the mere thought of him stays near to us and true to us, sustains us, 
and awakens us. Awakens what? Awakens the night, the dark. God, let your light come in. It's simply remembering he's here and it awakens you to his presence in the middle of whatever. It is keeping him right here close to you so that no matter what life brings, you don't focus on that warfare. You focus on the fact that he is with you and there's a table prepared for you right in the middle of it. So feast of that thing. Feast from his presence. Feast at the table with the bridegroom and not in the trouble, not in the hurt, not in the pain. And when you get lost at that table, it deals with the hurt and the pain, and the loss. So you read a passage like this, and it's really easy to focus on the breasts and the sexual connotations, but it's not that. It's I'm keeping you close. It's an intimate knowing. One could also say it wasn't just a hint of myrrh, not a flower of it, not a drop of it. It was a satchel, a bundle of it. In other words, keeping him close, there is more than enough of him to sustain me wherever I go. He is with me like a bundle of myrrh close to me. Let me say it like this. This is what the Shulamite woman is saying. I will not part from you. I'll take you with me. She says, I may not see you always, but I will carry your aroma wherever I go. I will keep you. I will live by faith that you are with me. And that faith is the one that worketh through love. He's with me. He delights in me. He wants to be with me. He wants to do great things through me. And apparently the kids in his church are experiencing that very same thing. Right? <clears throat> she says, your presence, it's, it's like a cluster of henna blossoms from En Gedi. You know, En Gedi is a famous oasis in the middle of the Judean wilderness. This, this, this random place in the middle of the most barren place is full of water and life. Even in the places of your life where you feel like there's nothing here for me. Anybody ever been there? There's nothing here for me. When is God going to shift me? When is God going to move me? I'm tired of being here. This is a dry place. It's a dry season. There is no such thing as a dry season when you get in the presence of the one who bears streams of the oasis. Streams of living water flowing from him. Carry the truth of him that in him you're alive and you're beautiful and you're full of evidence of producing even in the driest of times. And the fact of the matter is, when we get lost in this rhetoric of this isn't where I'm supposed to be, you have lost the fact that you have access to stream to living water wherever you are. Hmm. Verse 14. He's like a bouquet of henna blossoms. <clears throat> henna plucked near the vines at the fountain of the Lamb. I'll hold him, never let him part. Bride of Christ, listen to me. <clears throat> Do not ever part from his presence because it's the pathway to life-giving water, sustenance, the things you need in this life. Don't depend on the fountains of any other lover. Only him. And then as she says all this, that the, the spike nard awakens the night, that it brings me to you, 
that I can take it with me and remember you're with me. This is what the beloved, the king, God, responds with in verse 15. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes are, do- your eyes are doves. <clears throat> I want you to, before I even get into this, I want you to hear me on this. <clears throat> the king's response to this woman is what everyone strives for. I want God to take notice of me. I want to make sure that God is pleased with me. I want to make sure that God sees me. And she got that response not from doing anything other than, I recognize you're with me. Here's my best oil. It wasn't due. It wasn't religious things. It wasn't a system of operations. It was, here I am, and I know you're with me. She was getting lost in her identity, in her beloved. And God's response, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves. He sees her carry him with her and how she longs to pour out her best offering to him through the oil she wears. He says, you're beautiful. I see your eyes are like doves. And the dove is a symbol of love. What is, what is God saying? I'm accepting the worship and I see, I see the sincerity of your love for me in your eyes. In other words, when God looks at this woman, when the king looks at this woman, when God looks at you, you know what he's looking at? Where you're fixing your gaze. And he'll look at your gaze and he'll know exactly what's going on with you. And he'll either, he'll, he'll either see dove, that you're lost and in love with him, or maybe he'll respond like he did with Adam and Eve. Where are you? Psalm 63 says this. I'm closing. Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary, gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life. How I praise you. When you fix your eyes on him, the thing your soul thirsts for will not look to dry wells. It'll be satisfied in the one with everlasting streams. Listen to what it said. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In this land when there is no water. And we all go through seasons of life where we're needing that nourishment. We need that filling. And God simply says, if you would fix your eyes on me, you'll never tap into the wrong well. You'll never settle for another lover. You'll never try to get at another table. You'll just sit right here at the one I've prepared for you. The last two verses say in Song of Solomon, how handsome you are, my beloved. Oh, how charming. Our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters are firs. She says, our bed is verdant. It's green. The, the word literally means here rich or vegetation or fresh. The bed or the secret place of presence with God is never stale. It's always fresh 
He's always there offering himself. It's, 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 it's never outdated. It's always pleasant. It's always at the right time. And then she says, not only is your bed fresh and on time and always what I need, but the beams of our house are like cedars. The rafters are like fir. Cedar was strong, durable. It never rotted. Fir, cypress, it was pleasing to sight and smell. It speaks, actually, this, this passage is speaking to a walk on the countryside to get to a home. Some believe this home was actually the temple that Solomon built. But what it's speaking of is taking delight in a day-to-day walk with the beloved and his covering over your life. It's strong. It's durable. It's everlasting. It's never going to fade. And it's always going to come with a sweet, swelling aroma that the bride got. I can keep it right here. You see, don't let sweet-smelling aroma be, it's in Kentucky. Sweet-smelling aroma is not at Relentless Church on Saturday. You know where a sweet-smelling aroma is? And if we would start to get convinced of that, instead of trying to convince God of something else, we would see unbelievable things, signs and wonders and miracles pouring out because we're no longer getting lost in us, we're getting lost in Him. I've used this example a hundred times and I'm going to use it a hundred times more probably. But I remember what Colleen said. If any of you are new, she's in the white. Colleen, put your, yeah. This is Colleen. Last resurrection weekend, some call it Easter. And she's been in a wheelchair where she was paralyzed by a drunk driver like 20 years ago. Yeah, 20 years ago. Her kids, Devin up here is one of them. Hadn't seen her mama walk like four or five years old, you said? Okay, four or five. It sounds better. (laughs) 15 years old, and now she's much older than 15. Hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. A month before Resurrection Weekend, for the first time in 20 or so years, she forgave the man that paralyzed her. And a month later, we were in prayer, and that fragrance that was right here, for some reason she felt, stand up. For a woman who's been paralyzed for over 20 years, who had trouble digesting meat. See, some of y'all know this. Not only did she stand up and the wheelchair was left here, and then she left it up to me to get rid of it. <clears throat> but she, she went out that night and had like a fajita for the first time in 20 years and digested it. Why am I telling you this? Because when you get lost in who you truly are, everything else has to follow suit. It wasn't, God, heal me. It was she got lost in true Colleen walks. She got so lost in that, that before she could even walk, she forgave the man. And I'm telling you, everyone, what's my breakthrough? What's my deliverance? When you get lost in who you truly are, the things that you can't forgive and the things that you are still hold bitterness toward, it will follow suit like that and you will no longer struggle with it. Because you're realizing that that sweet-smelling aroma that can shift a room, shift an atmosphere, the fact that you're at the banquet table, it's right here. It awakens the night. It brings light to your dark places. What Savannah needs is not another great worship service. It's people who can't do anything but worship. That's it. When we get lost in that, 
We're going to see we're, we're going to see even greater levels of revival pour out over a city that, let me say this, was once was once known as the most haunted, and will be known for the most spirit filled. There's nothing boring when it comes to accepting the seat at the table. He loves you. Get lost in it. Amen. Let's stand. Can we give God praise tonight?